Podcastle, episode 282, for October 15th, 2013. The Sunshine Baron, by Patter O'Gillian. Rated R, contains violence, disturbing imagery, and disturbing themes. Viva la Revolution! Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and I'm wondering, where did this idea come from that protagonists in fiction have to be sympathetic or likable? It's nice to like the people you're reading about, but necessary? I don't think so. I've been listening to Stephen King's The Shining, and one of the things that strikes me about it is what a bastard Jack Torrance is. He has a history of abuse, emotionally with his wife, physically with his son, He's an alcoholic, he thinks he's smarter than everyone else, and has serious anger management issues. Sure, it's a horror story, but still, I think we can look at other stories and other genres. Walter White, Dexter, Thomas Covenant, just about anyone in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's so many flaws in these characters that, to misquote Sarah Val, if we got rid of them, there wouldn't be any character left. Is it that we hope for some kind of redemption with these characters? Maybe. Listening to The Shining, I kind of want Jackie Boy to make amends and to change, to be a hero instead of a raging madman. In Martin's books, sometimes it's the characters we think we revile most that we end up loving the best. Well, except Joffrey. I guess you can probably see where this is headed. Today, we have a dark slice of fantasy for your mid-October, Despite the sunny title of this week's story, our protagonist is anything but. And I hope you like listening about him, or at least, to his story. Podcastle's very proud to present The Sunshine Baron by Patter O'Gillian, and originally published in the anthology When the Villain Comes Home. Patter lives and works in Ireland. He's the author of two novels, The Inferior and The Deserter, They've been translated into 10 languages worldwide. He's also published dozens of short stories, two of which have been podcast by Pseudopod. He's currently organizing the YA program for Worldcon 2014, which will be held in London. You can find out more about him at frozenstories.com. Our reader this week is Rob Haynes. Rob is a writer, external biologist, and male voice choir singer who lives amongst the rafters of a Welsh chapel. His website is generation-one.com, and he recently launched an e-book of short stories on sale at gum.co slash postcards from Le Paris. Special shout-out to him for turning this story around so fast for us. So, keep an eye on the weather, don't bury your talents, and enjoy the story. The Sunshine Baron by Pedder O'Gillin. Ah, Borquil, lucky Borquil, many the balconies of his gilded mansion, north over the spice market, east where he sipped tea at dawn, west for opium, and south? Great Borquil never looked south. The sun shone on the northern capital, as it did every day. Borquil had seen to that, had grown rich on it, the famous Sunshine Baron. By night, a gentle rain would patter over the fields and fill a few cisterns 
before sliding gently seawards on the Farg River. Sweet-natured these days, though its name meant angry in the old tongue. I calmed it all down, muttered Borwell. Me. They should be more grateful. The northerners had shown gratitude at first. The king loved him. Whole provinces voted him honours, and over the years, as Borquil grew plump and the nightmares disturbed him less and less, aristocrats welcomed him into their homes. A foreigner no longer, they said amongst themselves. He is truly one of our own. Sure, they found it odd how he refused to travel more than a day south of the Farg River. But they too were rich enough to have ghosts they'd rather avoid. As the saying went, no man lies in his own poop. But now, how inconvenient for poor Borquill. Revolution had come to the Kingdom of the North. His aristocratic friends were losing their heads in the streets outside, and the mobs had come for his blood too. The double doors leading to his courtyard splintered and buckled under a battering ram. He had, perhaps, an hour to live. "'Where are my servants?' cried the baron. Only Urashtal remained to him. "'Fled, lord,' said the slave. "'The revolution, you see. The talentless.' The woman's black southern hair had long since faded into grey, but there was no disguising the hue of her skin. Tinged with gold, as Borquill's had once been before he had bought his way to a more civilised pale colour. He had purchased, too, the shiny blonde curls that would allow him to take a fuller part in northern life. "'Wretches!' he shouted at his missing staff. "'Talentless dogs!' Then he turned on his slave. "'You would have abandoned me, too, wouldn't you, if the magic of your bondage allowed it?' The old woman was sweating. Didn't I treat you well, Irashtal? I brought you with me before war broke out in the Southlands. You would have rotted there. Instead, you eat what I eat. I am your poison taster, Lord. True. And she had been much more than that once upon a time. He tried to ignore the splintering of his gates and the growing fear in his guts. You were a pretty thing, were you not? The richest men in the north delighted to the sound of your voice, but I wouldn't let them take it from you or share your bed. It is fitting we should fall now together. But the slave shocked him by grabbing his arm. Free me, lord, she said. Her voice was still strong, still beautiful. She sang him to sleep with it most nights. She alone knew how to keep the bad dreams at bay. Out in the courtyard, a loud crack and cheering told him the talentless were on the verge of breaking through. Irashtal's grip grew fierce enough to bruise his pale skin. He hadn't known she possessed such strength. While there's time, Borgi, remember what we meant to each other, back when you were a king. I beg you. Yes, he had been king, if only for a few weeks, but unbelievably lucky all the same. A very distant cousin of the southern royals, a very poor cousin. He was the only one left standing when rebellion came calling back home. Irashtal had been even younger than he was back then. They had fled north together before she could be married off to one of the other family servants. But Borquil's silver soon ran out. 
He'd already begun rehearsing arguments to get Arashtal to sell her talents or her body when a royalist messenger had found him at the dirty rooms he'd been renting in the northern capital. I am the king, he told Arashtal that day, his only friend. He swung her around the room, both of them young and full of laughter. But surely, she had said, they will declare a republic now. Tomorrow, he replied, the messenger got here just in time. For one or two more days, I am the legal ruler of the Southlands. It was all he needed to make his fortune. A particularly loud crack drifted up from the mansion's courtyard. A great cheer sounded, and the filthy poor, the talentless, poured into Borkwell's home. Let go of me, slave. He couldn't meet her eyes. South was not the only place he feared to look. By your vow I command it. Erashtal didn't want to release him, but the invocation of her oath gave her no choice. Her fingers sprang back of their own accord, and she cried out with the pain of it. Down in the courtyard, blond northerners overturned the haycart. Horses whinnied in panic as strangers pushed into the stables to pour at them, and glass, expensive and beautiful, shattered under grubby fists. Borkwell's heart thundered in his chest. The revolution had spread from poorer cities far from the capital. Angry, talentless, raging, full of envy for their betters, had imprisoned the king and filled the streets with blood for dogs to lap at. Watching them twisted Borquill with just enough anger to overcome his fear. He strode to the balcony. Stop this at once, he called, and everybody froze. As well they might. The voice he used commanded respect, its tones deep and confident. He had bought this talent from an army sergeant down on his luck, a man used to the chaos of battlefields far larger and more chaotic than this courtyard. You will leave my property. A few rioters sheepishly dropped wooden clubs and began backing towards the door, but a hooded woman strode into their midst and in a voice just as powerful as his called out, Enough of this farce! She looked up, and Borquill felt a clammy hand close over his heart. I don't allow southerners into my house. Apart from Irashtal, of course. He would have rid himself of her too if he didn't need her so much. The woman below pulled back her hood to reveal sleek black hair. It glistened so sweetly in the perfect sunlight of the northern capital that a foreigner might almost think that this was the source of the insult wethead used to describe southern refugees. Clever Borquill knew better, of course. He also knew that the best thing he could do right now was to fling himself headfirst onto the cobbles before that woman or the four skeletal gold-skinned men who had stalked in to flank her got their hands on him. But he didn't have the courage. Irrational. Here is my last order for you. Run now, and fetch the poison behind the tapestry of King Frindop. But, he could have invoked her oath again, but he had always preferred charm. Run, and I swear I will free you before the end comes. I swear it. She obeyed, even as the southerners and their talentless friends smashed their way into the lower floors of his mansion. Poor Borquill didn't want to die. He loved his life by the Farg River. 
Like the rest of the local aristocracy, he bought youth from starving but healthy young men whenever a wrinkle began to appear. A few coppers was all it cost him every time, and he'd raise a glass with his immortal friends to toast the foolishness of somebody who would sacrifice years of his life just to feed his children for another month. He had bought the ability to ride horses and skill with a hunting bow. He had once purchased three years of hard-won medical study from a student, ironically too ill to afford healing. Borkwill had made himself one of the most talented men in the land, but now he must end it, and quickly. Irashtal, he boomed in the sergeant's voice. What's keeping you? I hear them coming up the stairs already. Did she want to be free, or didn't she, the silly old woman? Just when he thought she had been caught by the rebels, and that he'd have to find the courage to jump over the balcony after all, she slid into the room and locked the great mahogany door behind her. She held the dark green bottle back from him for just a moment. Remember, Lord, you only have a few seconds to free me. She would serve him forever in the afterworld if he did not. No wonder she shook with fear. I won't forget, Rashi. Hand it over. The cork popped out more easily than Borkwill expected, but he forced the drink down. The poison was the first thing he had bought after he had signed that fateful deal with the Northern King and made his fortune. Even then, he knew his old compatriots would come for him one day. He hadn't relaxed until the King had built the Great Wall to keep the Wethead refugees out of the North. Even then, a few always made it through, and in the end he had protected himself from assassins by banning southerners from his presence entirely. He had also bought a huge array of fighting skills, but like many of the idle rich, he left warfare to others, and had allowed these talents to wither. So now, as battering began at the door to his rooms, as harsh voices threatened him in a language he barely remembered, poor Borquil was reduced to suicide. Don't cry, Lord, said Arashtal. It will be over soon. She stroked him, as she had so many times over their years together, when the nightmares rotted his sleep. He wanted to ask her to sing for him one more time, for his final rest, but the door was already starting to give way. He took two more swallows of the poison. It's very like brandy, he said, trying to be brave. Already his mind was swimming with images from his past. The words, Lord, Erashtal urged him. Free me. He put his arm around her withered shoulders. I'm not sure, Rashi. The words. I need you. In the afterworld, you see, I have no family. You lied to me. The door finally gave way. Three black-haired men charged into the room. One of them ran straight for the window to block off the balcony. They must have feared he would still kill himself. You're too late, he said to them. Irashtal spat in his face. He jerked back from her in shock. Then she wrenched the bottle from his grasp. A drink, gentlemen, she asked. Oh, don't worry, she said in the southern tongue, her words rusty. It's just brandy. And to poor Borquill. You're not the only one who can lie, master. The black-haired young woman joined them in the bedroom. She too spoke southern. Borkwill got the gist of it. 
Well, well, my king, she bowed, winking at her accomplices. Time we brought you home to your people. I'm not the king. I gave that up. The woman answered him in northern, her cold face twisting with the foreign words. That's not all you gived up. The filthy wet heads grabbed poor Borquil. Bony fingers circled him with rope, then they bundled him through the splintered door. What about me? asked Arashtal. The leader of the kidnappers turned. A dirty slave, she said. Disgusting. But I helped you. He asked for poison, and who cares what you do, one like you? I will come with you, then. Down the stairs they brought the trembling Borquil, Baron of Kareem, and passed the merry looters until one burly southerner took notice and cried, Look! Them wetheads is trying to rescue him! The woman kidnapper slid forward and punched a dagger into the man's throat, but already his warning had spread, and it followed the fleeing band out of the house and onto the roiling streets. Borquil saw heads on pikes, surprised faces of men and women he knew well, handsome and beautiful and young, all curled about with veils of smoke from their burning palaces. People ran past with stolen silks, or struggled under gilded furniture, or fought each other for candlesticks. A knot of men stamped and kicked at something on the ground, while crimson rivulets spread onto the cobbles at their feet. Borquil couldn't hear himself think under the great animal roar of the crowd. A few people tried to impede the wet heads moving through their midst, but every time the woman would kill them. Young or old, it didn't matter to her. Borquil watched her stab a child, and knew then, in his heart, that he would get no mercy from the likes of her. However, as they left the crowds behind, and rounded the corner of Golden Street into Hallowed Temple, they came face to face with a barricade manned by pikemen. Their mismatched armour and the blue rag tied over their biceps stole any hope Borquil might have had of rescue. Their captain even had his dumpy wife and pair of brats with him. She had brought him his lunch, and he waved now at the approaching group with a heel of bread. Wetheads, said the captain. You're next when we finish off the talented. Run back to the wall while there's yet time. The wall. Even the sound of the words sent shivers through Borko's body. These days he never travelled within a week's journey of his ancient homeland. He always made sure he had a headache when the northern king invited him hunting near the border. It's an amazing sight, Baron, the monarch had told him once. I don't like to look south. But you should see what you have accomplished, sir. You need to see it to understand. Borko saw it all right, on bad nights when the dreams came. He couldn't go back there now. He couldn't. He elbowed one of his captors in the belly and struggled free. They're kidnapping me. I'm one of you. The wetheads. Immediately the southerners surrounded him again and forced him to his knees. But the captain had dropped his bread and had taken a pike from the wall where he had left it leaning. His men muttered angrily, lowering their own weapons. Kill them, Urkel, said the captain's wife. Them's as like rats, the way they stream over the border to take what's ours. Filthy slug-eating wetheads. The southerner men drew swords from sheaths hidden on their backs and held them steady enough that the blonde captain began to have second thoughts. 
Just let the prisoner go, Wetties, all right? No need for blood, but we can't just have you walk off with one of ours. The murderous southern woman stepped forward, her face beautiful as it was severe. She gestured to Borquill. He is talented. Look at his clothing. Look at the silk. He should be killed then, like the others. The scum deserve it. We have better idea, us, she replied. Take him over the wall to be our slave. All of the soldiers grinned. Do they really hate me that much? Borquill wondered. Is it my fault they are talentless? He spoke aloud. It's true, I am a noble. Nobody stopped him climbing to his feet again. But I am different from other members of my class in one vital aspect. Oh, said the captain, and what aspect would that be, mighty lord? I am Borquill, who changed the weather. I am the Sunshine Baron. Their eyes widened, and the southern woman started to look worried. Any moment now, and she would shut him up. He spoke quickly. I am the one who made the crops grow so well. He pointed at the stunning palaces surrounding Hallowed Market. I made this land rich. I made all of you rich. A pause followed his words, and then the captain laughed aloud. No, high one. You made the nobles rich as angels, and us poor as devils. You made them rich enough to buy what few talents we had left. I myself was a fine hunter, till Lord Cosmal made me give it up to pay a fine. Then Wetties is welcome to you. He signalled the men to part the barrier, and the kidnappers pulled him through it. Outside the city, the Wetheads had stolen a covered wagon. They shoved fearful Borquill inside, and allowed Irashtal to join him there. He wanted to plan an escape for himself, or pain-free suicide, but his slave wouldn't let him be, apologising for her betrayal, and begging, begging that he say the words and free her before it was too late. You would die without me, he said to shut her up. I could earn my keep in a tavern, Lord, with my singing. Sing now then, you crone, and I'll think about it. He felt more afraid than he had since he was a boy fleeing his father's wrath. There'd been no wall then. The border at the time had consisted of hills too poor to fight over. There'd been no refugees either. Only merchants and artists and travelling nobles. Outside the wagon, the southerners muttered among themselves. Rain began to patter against the fabric roof, and he realised by the sound of it that midnight had come. Who could know it better than he? Borquil the lucky, Borquil the clever, who had ensured that the only rain in the north came at night, only ever heavy enough to please the crops. He hated that sound more than any other, because nothing was more likely to bring on the nightmares. But then Arashtal sang. Her voice had the breathy quality of a flute, designed by angels for lullabies, for the easing of hurts. Her singing rolled back years to when he'd been a child in bed with fever, and the cool hand on his brow had been his mother's. The words were the same as mother's too, the only parts of the southern tongue he still understood well. Sweet child, Arashtal purred, my heart's nectar. Each pure note, high as heaven, or earthy and low, slowed Borquil's heart. 
The rain itself paused to listen, it seemed. Even the rough southerners outside. Then the fastenings of the wagon were ripped open to reveal the female leader of his kidnappers. She had tears on her sharp cheekbones. How? she asked. The prisoners stared at the newcomer, confused. A dirty slave? How? Arashdor sat tall. I am not dirty. I gave myself to him, when we were both young, as a present. The kidnapper's upper lip curled. We were in love, said Arashdor. There'd been more to it than that, and Borkwell was grateful that the slave held back from the full story. Some of those memories were thorns to his heart. He wished the women would shut up. Then why not he give himself to you? If proper love, why? Borkwell had forgotten how much his people despised slaves. Selling talents was something only the desperate did, because you always lost more than you expected on the deal. Selling the ability to fight might leave a soldier's arms completely paralysed. Selling a few years of youth had been known to stop the seller's heart sometimes. But only a real fool would hand over her eternal soul without a similar commitment from her lover. Happy Borquill had agreed to a full exchange of vows back in those heady days of youth, sixty years past now. It was this promise that persuaded Irashtal to run away north with him, with less than a purse of silver to their names. You were idiot, the kidnapper told the old woman. You will sing again. She sat next to Borkwell and closed her eyes. Every day, the wagon travelled further south, and every evening the black-haired woman returned to listen to the singing and to weep. Was she thinking of the child she had killed in the streets of the capital? Borkwell felt sure her nights were haunted by even worse crimes than that. At the end of each session, she would stumble out of the back of the wagon in a daze. At dawn, three days' travel from the border, they dragged the trembling Borkwill into the light. The sun was rising on yet another perfect day in the north. All around lay the gigantic estates of the talented. Field upon field of hemp or wheat, and not a servant to be seen, although a column of smoke rose to the east where a village or a castle might be burning. You look the wrong way, traitor king said the southern woman. I'm not your king. You must look. They had to force him to turn around, to face south. The woman herself pried open his eyelids, her rough nails biting his skin. His vision began to blur almost immediately, but it was too late. The wall, built fifty years before to keep out the wetheads, was little more than a dark line on the southern horizon. But above it, above, Borquill fell to his knees, careless of pebbles on the roadbed. He choked and cried out, I'm not a bad man, I'm not. His words died away. The real wall, not the one made by the northerners, the real one, was built of ferocious black clouds. It extended far into the sky, boiling and spinning, fizzing with lightning. It shifted colour constantly, a rainbow of blacks and greys and sudden white cracks. The woman knelt to whisper in his ear, quietly, gently. We are still three days away.
Imagine what it is like, you, to live under it, inside it. He tried to jerk away, weeping, but none of them would let him. We were millions when you left, your majesty. Now we are thousands. One day, none. You sold our weather. I was king. It was my right. And the rebels would have hunted me down anyway, cut my head off. Nobody will cut your head, your majesty. We just want you to live with us, forever if possible. Volunteers will give years of their youth just to keep you in our midst. I will be the first among them. Please, said poor Borquill. It really wasn't his fault. He had been young. He had wanted to get back at the rebels who had killed his family. And wealth, of course, he had wanted that too. Anybody would have done the same. I can pay, he said. I have talents. I can make you a great speaker, a faster runner. You, you could be blonde. I'd give that up. You could live here and nobody would know you for a wethead. You have nothing I want, your majesty. But at that moment, Borquill heard another sob behind him. Urashtal had seen the wall too. Borquill realised then that he possessed one thing the kidnapper wanted, and for the first time in days, hope took root in his heart. That night, the southerners made no camp, preferring to keep moving towards their drowning homeland. Their chief climbed in anyway, through the back, and eased herself next to the baron. Erastal opened her lips, but Borquil stopped her. By your vow I command you not to sing. She closed her mouth with a snap. She must, said the kidnapper. She cannot, Borquil replied. The woman shrugged as if it were of no import. Borquil leaned forward against the ropes that held him. It is in my power to give her to you, as a gift. Urashtal tried to protest, but once again her master silenced her with the words of command. The kidnapper snarled. Is this how you think to buy me? How like talented. I would not own a slave. It is filthy. Borquil licked his lips. You don't have to take her soul. Her talents are also mine to dispose of. Urashtal gasped. What do you mean? asked the woman. Her voice. Her ability. I can command her to give it up. To give it to you. She would have no choice. Both women stared at him. The wethead's features seemed to ripple as tendencies fought for control of her heart. No, she said finally, hoarsely. No, she stood too quickly, falling backwards as though he had offered her a scorpion. You must be punished for what you did. You must live as we do. I won't. I can't accept. She moved to escape. Clever Borquil was too quick for her. Sing, Rastel, he ordered. By your oath, I command you to sing. And weeping, the slave opened her miraculous throat. Some hours later, Borquil and Rashtal crouched in a ditch, no more than a day's walk from the wall. He could feel that dread structure. It lay at his back, of course, for he would not look upon it ever again if possible. You should not have betrayed me, slave, 
Had you brought the poison, as I'd asked, you would not be in this position now. Her shoulders shook. She was weeping, he supposed, but no sound emerged. Her voice belonged to another now. He tried not to think about that too deeply. At least that woman kept her side of the bargain, eh? Getting us out of there? Not that the southerner had had a choice. Magical bargains made dishonesty impossible. We'll head north until we find some loyalists to protect us from the revolution. We could make our way to a port, maybe. Erashtal turned around. He flinched, expecting hatred. But her eyes were pleading. She climbed up onto her knees in front of him and clasped both hands as if in prayer. Oh, there's no need for that, Rashi. You know I can't free you. But help me get somewhere safe, and I promise I will consider it. Her teary eyes narrowed. Then she eased her ugly old body onto the ground for sleep. I should get some rest too, he muttered. A long, long journey lay ahead of them. When Borquil woke again, he was alone. He cursed himself for a fool. He should have used the words of command to make Arashtal stay by his side. If she moved out of earshot, he couldn't give her orders any more. The only thing that might bring her back was the chance that he would utter the words of unbinding, but her absence told him she had finally given up hope of that forever. He cursed himself again until he remembered that she couldn't even sing for him any more. Foolish Borquil. She would have slowed you down, he muttered. Then he heard a noise from behind. Irashtal? He didn't want to turn around, to face south. He had to force himself, although he kept his gaze too low to see the clouds above the wall. His slave had returned after all, but she had not come alone. The four southern men stood beside her. They held a spear with another woman's head on top of it, her traitor's blood dripping down the shaft. Unlucky Borquil hadn't the strength to resist. He didn't even beg. Unlike the woman they had killed, none of these men spoke northern, and he had forgotten southern speech almost entirely. Nor, with the revolution going on, were there any nearby friendly garrisons to come to his aid. They dragged him along to the base of the wall, and into a brush-covered tunnel beneath it. The temperature dropped halfway along. A part of him found this strange. It had been so warm down south when he had been a boy. The family used to sleep during the hottest parts of the day, while servants wafted them with fans. There had been fruit trees and exotic birds. There were wild cats large enough to hunt antelope, and all of it was beautiful, the colours rich and wild. That's what he saw in his dreams on the nights Erashtal sang for him. That's where he went. Up ahead, an angry grey daylight appeared. He didn't want to advance, but his legs carried him forward. He felt light, as though relieved of some burden. He hadn't cried since he was a boy, yet tears now rolled down his face. He shrugged off his captors and walked forward by himself, like a man so fascinated by the cliff that he allows himself to tip forward. Somebody shivered beside him in the tunnel, his slave. In this weak light, he could still imagine her as she once was, a lithe, golden-skinned beauty, her eyes flashing with humour, saucy sometimes when mother was out of the room, gentle, kind, 
She had begged him not to sell out their homeland. She had wept and wept. But I'll have nothing if I don't do this, he'd said. No, my love, you have me. You'll always have me. And to prove it, she had sworn her soul to him, then and there, sworn it to him in order to save their people. Lovely Rashtal, sweet girl. And he had tasted the words on his own lips, his own promise bubbling to the surface, and almost, almost set free to float happily on the air beside hers. Oh, Rashtal. The men allowed him to pause ten paces from the entrance. He touched the slave under her chin. You are free, lady. I am sorry. She spat in his face. He looked at the warriors behind him. I am sorry, sirs. They spun him roughly around. Poor Borquil, unhappy Borquil. They faced him south. And then they brought him home. And welcome back. Redemption is a tricky thing. I'm a firm believer in it myself, but for some people, for some sins, their certain actions are irredeemable. Can Vader really be redeemed after what he did to the younglings? Can Borquil, after what he did in this story, is forgiveness that easy to attain? I don't know. I'm going to do things a little differently this week and talk to you all about donating before we get to the feedback. Hopefully you've all heard the Metacast that went out a few days ago. If you haven't, the long and the short of it is, if something doesn't change fast, we can't keep doing this. Probably not past the end of this year. We really, really need your help. Look, we know times are tough. Hell, some of our own staff have been laid off from their day jobs. We know there's this crazy government shutdown going right now. People are furloughed. Times are tough. It sucks. We totally get that. We're not here to make you feel guilty. All we're here to do is ask for help if you can. If you can help us out even just a little bit, it'd be greatly appreciated. We've added $2 a month subscription buttons on our websites. $2 goes a long way for us. If things are too tough for you to do $2, you can't afford that. Like I said, we get it. No hard feelings. But if you can, if you can, we'd really, really appreciate it. It'll make telling you stories here at PodCastle, at Escape Pod, at Pseudopod, a certainty for the next year. Some of you don't feel good about using PayPal to support us and would like some kind of alternative? Well, I'm happy to say that we now have a Dwala account. Our ID is 812-527-2340. You can log into your account and send us a one-time or recurring payment there. Thank you. Whatever you can give, thank you. Coming here every week, telling you stories, we love doing that. It's one of my personal favorite things that I get to do, and I want to keep doing it. So please help us. I hate having to ask it, but without some help, we won't be here next year. And I want to be. We have some great stuff planned for you. Anna and I have put together 
a great schedule for the beginning of next year. We want to share these stories with you. Please help us make that possible. Okay, feedback this week is for Derek Kunskins, Juan Caceres, and the Zapateros Workshop, read by Roberto Suarez. This was the story about Juan Caceres, a rebellious teenager who enjoyed saying his own name repeatedly, bragging that he'd snorted ogre toe, and who risks everything to keep his kid brother from turning into a monster. Personally, it was one of my favorite marriages of a story and a reader this year. And yeah, we've had some really great ones. I also love the punk rock vibe this story had. Reaction to it was mixed. Prakion said, Love this one. Love the intro, the narration, the plucky main character. The idea of pixie dust battled part goblin ragamuffins hanging around Pizza Hut. The vile troll slash cobbler. Everything. Am I just a sucker for reimagined fairy tales? Who knows, but this one was delightful. Makes me wonder what sort of adventures Juan got into escaping from that detention center. Not everyone was a fan, though. Sean said, I recognize that this is fantasy, but based close enough to a reality for that reality to be pertinent. I'm not sure what this story is trying to say about the lives of street kids, but for me, it wasn't at all what I experienced. I worked for two plus years at a rescue center for street boys in Africa. Some of the details definitely draw from street life. The details about huffing and how it relates to shoes and cobblers is close to the truth. They mix shoe glue with gasoline and breathe that directly from a bottle or soaked rag. It numbs and stupefies them, takes the edge off the fear and hunger and discomfort. The life is incredibly harsh and yet desperately monotonous. There's rage and rape and disease and insanity. I cannot enjoy anything that even hints at romanticizing the lives of these kids. There's no truth to it. But the life and habits are also remarkably addicting. And I did feel that this story got some of that across. It's a story worth telling, and this is a fantasy take on it. I'm not backtracking, but do want to be fair and balanced. Well, thank you very much for those comments, and... You can swing on by forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. We'd love to hear from you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We hope we can continue to do it. Before we go, we've got a message about a Kickstarter from our friend Alistair Stewart, who's in charge of it. Fans of Gale Carriagers will definitely want to tune in. Other than that, we'll be back in one week with a story by Tim Pratt, which takes some very odd right turns. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a week. Deep in space, in the bowels of the wheel, they run. Meet Mara, Krugrat, born to slavery, trained to run, to jump, to clean the great machines that drive the world. And when puberty strikes, expelled, exiled, set adrift to starve and die. From the mind of Gail Carriger, the author of Soulless and the Finishing School series, comes the story of one girl without a home and one monster chained and ransomed and their relentless struggle to win their freedom. For the first time anywhere, Gail Carriger's 
Crud Rat. A full cast production directed by J. Daniel Sawyer, the four-time Parsec-nominated producer of Down From Ten and The Antithesis Progression, with original music by award-nominated composer Danny Shade. Gail Carragher's Crud Rat. Kickstarting October 1st. Get details at www.crudrat.com. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Anna Godberson, who wrote, The living are made of nothing but flaws. The dead, with each passing day in the afterlife, becomes more and more impeccable to those who remain earthbound. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.